And welcome back to your favorite podcast on the left, Timber Sycamore, with your hosts, Hayden DePriest. And Michael Petroselli. Okay, so we are talking about... Let's get back into it. Okay, so we are talking about uh, Phase 2 of the war, which... Uh, the Lasts from war. 1992 to 1996. Yes. Um, and is fairly tragic all the way through. Um, and begins with... Um, an event that was described by Human Rights Watch uh, when they chose to document the shelling of Kabul specifically because they mentioned that many articles were written about the Soviet crimes and the Taliban's crimes before and after this. Mm-hmm. But almost nothing was written about it. Uh, so they said, why Kabul and why 1371, which is the Afghan year 1371, uh, the year 1992. To start, there's the scale of the abuses and their context. The year 1371 was Afghanistan's first full year of freedom from the Soviets and the wake of 10 years of Soviet occupation in the 80s. The change of power in Kabul could have marked a new beginning for Afghanistan. Instead, it was one of its darkest eras. As this report will show, Kabul in 1371 is the scene of constant armed conflict amongst Afghan military factions, rival Mujahideen forces, defecting army forces. During this period, the various factions and commit countless atrocities against the Afghan civilian population. Tens of thousands of civilians are killed and injured amidst the fighting. Many, if not most of these casualties, are the result of direct or indiscriminate attacks on the civilian population and other violations of internal. Militias will abduct thousands of civilians, most of whom are never seen again. Much of the city is looted or destroyed. Much of the destruction that scars Kabul to this day takes place during this period and in the years immediately following. Um, The Human Rights Watch document is a truly stunning account of, they do over 150 interviews with just civilians. They did interviews with military leaders, they did interviews with Western journalists, with Afghani journalists, pretty much anyone they could find who was in Kabul and was still alive and willing to tell the story. Most people asked for their names to be hidden. Um, they would assign random three-letter names to them as initials that were unrelated to their real name because of how much risk people were in. Most of the people who carry out these atrocities still hold power today, or their children do, and almost all of them held power through the early 2000s. The point of this podcast is to teach you about Afghan history, but uh, we would be remiss if we didn't actually make it clear to you the level of suffering that occurred in Afghanistan as a result of it. And there are very few events that typify it quite so clearly. One account, a woman says, it was 4 p.m. and I was baking some bread outside over a fire. There was a big explosion. I took cover on the ground. Then there was another explosion. I got up and I could see this woman here. She pointed to her neighbor who was sitting next to her crying. 
she was just running about. The woman had asked her neighbor to tell her story for her and nodded throughout. Her son had been sitting near this wall outside. The artillery landed. He was completely blown up. She was running around the yard, collecting pieces of his flesh in her apron and crying. Her son's name was Saki. He disappeared. Her grandson Mukhtar was also destroyed in the same explosion. Uh, Sharon Herbaugh, who was a correspondent with AP, would ultimately die in a helicopter crash north of Kabul. She fired a dispatch on June 5th. Attacks continued and more shops, schools, and homes are destroyed at the ravaged capital. 20 people were killed and at least 100 more injured. Rival forces pound each other with rockets and mortars, destroying entire blocks of shops and houses, knocking down power lines. In downtown Kabul, rockets slam into three empty schools. They killed four passerbys, set fires. Missiles fell in a house in northern Kabul, killing a family of six. Unidentified gunmen ran into the street, raked a row of shops near the Kabul Zoo, killed and injured 10 people, witnesses said. Residents in Shia neighborhoods also accused Sunni rebels of looting shops and houses, killing prisoners, gouging out the eyes of the wounded, and burning dead bodies. Based on what we know, Jundish at this time becomes notorious for committing war crimes, especially looting. Uh, as Jundish and Jamiat march through Kabul to go confront Hekmatyar, uh, they rip people from their homes, move them out of the home into the street, uh, using their homes as functional bunkers. Uh, which is an understandable thing to do in an unoccupied house. Dunbish becomes, develops a nickname during this time, which is called Gilam Jam, uh, Gilam Jam, uh, which means to tear the rug up because of how much they loot. The reality is most of these soldiers prior to this are very poor, and that is a very sad thing but they are also not just poor by, they were very poor by Afghani standards. When it gets to be very offensive is when you find out that there were generals in militaries who were having their men bring all of the looted goods to them so that they could resell them at a profit. Because the generals in the armies were not very poor. I can understand why someone who was starving before they joined the military would steal from someone, right? Mm-hmm. I cannot understand why someone who was reasonably wealthy, if not incredibly wealthy before this, also stealing from someone. I mean, I can. I know why it is. Um, but it is much less justifiable and excusable. Uh, the shelling itself begins on April 24th. Uh, Hizbi Islamic Obudin is driven back south of the city. They are driven out. Um, and this leads to about a week of relative peace, speaking as far as things go, 
right? Uh, there's not open fighting in your neighborhood. And then the other Mujahideen forces show up. And seeing that everyone else is in the city, uh, we now have six armies in the city. There was a Republican senator who said one time that uh, if NATO showed up in his neighborhood, he would hide his wife and daughter and grab his rifle and shoot if any of them came near him. This is not dissimilar. They call for another meeting, another truce, almost immediately following the truce. Uh, Itihadi Islami and his Biwadat begin fighting. And what year are we at by this point? 92 still. We are still in the Battle of Kabul. Yes. Um, Just wanted to clarify. So Hizbiwadat and Itihad begin the Battle of Kabul. Uh, while they are fighting, Hekbachar then begins uh, shelling the city. There was a public perception campaign uh, that Human Rights Watch actively identifies carried out by the United States and Pakistan at this time, which is that this was the only option they had because they did not know how to aim their weapons. Right? They're using uh, sometimes advanced artillery. Uh, so what they called smart artillery or dumb artillery at the time. Dumb artillery is what most of the armies were using because they do not have access to the stolen Soviet weapons. And so what is smart artillery? How does it, how does it operate? Uh, smart artillery requires spotters. Uh, and it can adjust for elevation and wind. And it can hit very specific targets from very far away. Okay. The counter to this is that uh, Human Rights Watch says that as the primary recipient of international assistance and training, Hizbi Islami is arguably the best trained Mujahideen group in Kabul. Many commanders and troops are trained by Pakistani, American, and British experts on the use of rocket and artillery systems. Journalists who visit sites held by Hizbi Islamic forces to the south of Kabul see numerous D30 122mm cannons that are being used for attacking Kabul, a relatively precise artillery system. Reporting in footage from 92 and 93 suggests that they can, when they want to, precisely aim such artillery. BBC film footage from May 92 shows accurate targeting of artillery by Hizbi Islami of Jamiat and Junbish positions in Kabul. Terence White, a correspondent with Ajahn, uh, ooh, uh, the French press agency, I'm translating that one, <laughs> reported precise artillery fire against Jamiat positions in South Kabul in 1993. In many cases, his Islami artillery and rockets hit civilian areas, suggesting that they were either purposely targeting such areas or recklessly aiming at Kabul as a whole. For a long time frame in which the attacks take place, their scope, and their continued inaccuracy, in spite of having spotters, strongly suggests that there is neither a fixable problem with artillery aim calibration, nor weapon system failure. Accurate and aimable weapons are being shot into civilian areas in violation of international humanitarian law. Mohammed Nabi Azimi, the high, a high-level military officer, said that uh, cruelty, injustice, inhumanity become a chronic disease and that humanitarian humanity and honor are crucified. 
in Kabul. He had to flee Afghanistan following this um, because he speaks out against the excesses. Calling them excesses is not fair because that implies that there was a part of this that was justified, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what happens is West Kabul, which is uh, the minority area, right? It is primarily Hazara, Tajik, Uzbek, Turkmen. Becomes a fucking war zone for anyone living there. He said Hazaras abducted Pashtuns and Pashtuns abducted Hazaras wherever they saw each other. They pulled out the fingernails of prisoners, cut off hands, cut off legs, hammered nails into prisoners' skulls. Humans would be put in sh shipping containers and the containers would be set on fire. A hospital worker would say that I had seen hostages who had been tortured, civilians and non-civilians. I saw what they had done to people, people beaten up, people tortured. They would shove rocket-propelled grenades into people's anuses and gang-rape girls. The Battle of Kabul is an atrocity on all sides. And the reality is that no military leader during this, no matter who they are, adequately attempted to stop it. Some of them would issue statements like, hey, don't rape people. No court martials given out. Nobody is prevented from doing it. Nobody is punished for it. Um, the general who I quoted, or uh, he's not a general, he's like the equivalent of an American colonel, ultimately speaks out against it and uh, is threatened for it. In total, 7 million civilians would be displaced uh, and 500,000 during this event. And so what was the... What could we say was the conclusion of the Battle of Kabul here? What were the consequences? What are the consequences? For who? For civilians? For the uh, a lot. For the, no, for the war effort in general. That, um, is, that, is, that is what we are looking at here. You know, that is the, that's the progress that I want to see how it's... His P. Uh, Islamic Gold Button is pushed back by the combined force of Dungish and uh, the Eastern Shura, which is Masood's forces. And so what is Which, the state of, what would you say is the state of the war at this point as far as regional control goes? So at this point, uh, Junbish and, and Masood are about to claim Mazari Sharif, which will become the headquarters of the Northern Alliance for uh, the next five years. In terms of Masood's forces, Talakan, which is in northern Panjshir, uh, is still where their headquarters operates out of. Uh, this creates some tension with Dostum, uh, which becomes very significant tension between Masood and Dostum. So we're in right about 1992-1993 right now. And we have the rise of the, we have the formation of the Taliban, I believe, in 94, correct? Correct. So um, still a, we are still about a year away from that by this point. Yeah. So uh, there's a book. It's called Night Letters, um, The Secret History of Hekmatyar Golbuddin. And the, this is not a defense of the Taliban. I have to clarify that beforehand. <laughs> the Taliban will commit plenty of their own atrocities by the end of this. You don't have to hand it to them, no. So the Taliban rise to some level of regional prominence, according to this book. Masood's forces establish control over Kabul, and uh, Hekmatyar's hopes of ruling Afghanistan alone are be slowly being buried in the rubble of Kabul. 
He remains as determined as ever. The Afghan capital is not the only place to suffer from his hubris. In 1994, across the country, his and its coalition partners clashed with the government in a spasm of violence that displaces several hundred thousand people more. The bloodshed is the climax of two years of mayhem and murder that had changed the country forever, lives with the nation's history, social fabric, and culture. Ever since Massoud's forces had established control over Kabul, they would tear around town in old Russian jeeps, blasting, merics, blasting music from boomboxes, gesturing obscenely at passers-by. From the vantage point of their mountain outposts, Jamiat gunmen would shoot civilians, which is also mentioned in the Human Rights Watch report, uh, that in West Kabul they would uh, wait for a human being to move out of their house and then strafe the entire neighborhood with anti-aircraft fire. None of the factions are winning. All they had succeeded in doing is tarnishing the, their legacy and their victory over the Soviets. In the south the country, of the country, a group of rural Pashtuns had finally had enough. There was a new revolution stirring, this time against the Mujahideen. Tired of the chaos in their midst, a group of students took up arms. The first of these were, re were reluctant. They would make clear in their writings and in their statements that they did not seek power, they only sought peace. They were made up of pious former madrasa students, Talibs, from Kandahar, who felt compelled by God to restore law to their community. And so we're talking about the Taliban at this point? Not yet. Not yet? What's... Well, they are the Taliban, but they are not yet the Taliban. These are the, 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 early, these are the early groups that will eventually form the Taliban. Yes, they just, like at this point, they just considered themselves Talibs of a madrasa. Mm -hmm. Like nobody else referred to them as that yet. But are they, are, um, is this the same infrastructure that would eventually become the Taliban that's being Yes, so Mullah Omar comes from this madrasa. So we are effectively, would you say this yeah, is effectively it, the establishment of the Taliban? This is the real formal foundation of them, yeah. Okay. So when we talked about... This was something that I actually didn't even come up against until very recently. Did you have anything to say about the about the Taliban's like ideological roots, the Diobandi? Uh, yes. That I think is interesting. This is a term that I found very little, very little said about it outside of a lot of Indian sources seem to really know about Diobandi. That's because Diobandi is an Indian movement. It is. It 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 comes from. Oh God! I put a, I, yeah, yeah. So the Diobandi movement does trace its roots back to the Daru Ulum Dioband in Uttar Pradesh. It's an Indian Islamic movement. In its uh, most basic form, it is mostly an intellectual Hanafi revivalist movement, which did ostensibly engage in interfaith dialogue. Again, in its in its most basic roots, back to the 19th century. The Taliban are a little bit different. But they do ultimately have some kind of like nominal connection to this movement, which is just a revivalist. We'll just call it like a revivalist uh, Salafi adjacent movement in general, I think. Right. Yeah. So Deobandism has a huge effect on the Salafist movement and specifically on Ali Hadith, uh, which is this idea that you cannot interpret the Quran. Uh, it means like people of tradition functionally. So in the earliest days, the Taliban represents Ideologically, they are always going to be what they are, right? They are this kind of strictly militant 
Well, so in the beginning, they're not strictly militant. They really just want peace in the beginning. That's something they are very convinced of. That, like, this is not going to continue specifically because they don't want to become another Mujahideen. That is a big concern of theirs, at least with the early ones. So uh, they start these uh, this trend, which is the development of uh, specific Mujahids into Taliban, um, which is significant because there is a truth to what they are saying. Uh, so the Taliban at first become famous or well-regarded amongst the populace because Hizbi Islami Golbuddin's men are carrying out this kind of mass rape campaign in Canada. So the Taliban take like a pretty strict interpretation of the idea that like doing good alone is not enough. You also have to stop evil, especially in the early days. Like they're very devoted to the idea that like, because these men are rapists, anything we do to them is justified. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which like to some extent when as a military, you are carrying out a mass rape terror campaign, can't really disagree with them. Like if people start shooting you because of that, Guess who brought that on themselves? Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> when you carry out mass rape campaigns, you get shot sometimes. Doesn't seem to have any particular military purpose either, which I know is kind of batshit ridiculous to even vocalize, but yeah. So, and the Taliban becomes formally organized by 1994. Yes. So, By, by which point there is a shift of... It seems to be in 1994 that Pakistan also shifts their resources from Hekmatyar, who has been recently sort of embarrassed in Kabul, to the Taliban through the ISI. Yes. Uh, so in 94, uh, the Taliban formally take Kandahar, uh, which is also them like formally establishing themselves as the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Um, Kandahar province, if you do not recall, is very, very far in the southeast of Afghanistan. So it's, um, like, even in their original writing, you see things like, uh, with a small group of students of the Sharia sciences and Afghan Mawalawis in Kandahar, uh, we began pursuing a convoy from travelers and abducted women and raped them near Kandahar. Then the students, and at their head was Mullah Muhammad Omar, captured the thieves' weapons, found some of the women killed and raped, and the thieves fled from them away from Kandahar. Then the people of that area removed its governor, who was a follower of Robani, the, uh, the ruler of Kabul at the time, due to his inability to hold thieves accountable, and they appointed Mullah Omar to represent them. This is the beginning of the Amir al-Mumin, as narrated by him, and which came from his tongue in a recording which was broadcast by the radio, the voice of the Sharia in Kandahar. Uh, it then goes on to, uh, so it's an excerpt, uh, it's from the Taliban reader. <laughs> mm, yeah. It's an expert excerpt from a Taliban soldier's book, his like personal notebook, which was later pu- published as a memoir by the you can certainly see where people are coming from supporting the guys who are stopping the mass rape campaign. It's in, like not that they are right at all. But if my choice is Salafists who let people run around and rape people or Salafists who don't, if 
that's the only difference. I'm going with Group B. It's a real Sophie's choice there, Michael. Yeah. So Dale Bondi movement tends to be very militant, even in its own time. Um, they oppose this kind of uh, quiet that exists. So it's important to note when we say Salafists that most Salafists are quietists, right? Because we've like mentioned that term a lot. Most Salafists are quietists. Uh, the second largest group is what is termed uh, activists. Uh, who believe that you should, through legal channels, begin to shift your government towards what you would want it to see. Uh, and the third group are what we term radicals, which would fall under pretty much everyone we've talked about so far. Even within Salafism, the radical movement is a relative minority. Within Islam, Salafism is a relative minority And as a whole, like this is a fraction of a fraction of human beings. Like I really cannot stress enough that these are not like overwhelmingly popular movements that reflect on like the religion of Islam as a whole. Because I, like at times we use the word Salafist a lot here. But, like, even within Salafism, these people are, uh, like, so the estimate that I saw uh, was that 18% maximum would fall under the category of radical or activist. Mm -hmm. uh, the rest of them simply believe that you should practice Sharia as closely as possibly in your own life, which, uh, you know, I'm perfectly fine with that. Like, I have no objection to that at all. If you want to legislate your own morality in your life, that is good, actually. You should do that. Like, you should have a firm set of morals that you live by. Um, if you want to legislate other people's morality, now we have an issue. So as we enter 1995, the Taliban is strengthening. They've taken Kandahar. What else do we have going on? In 95? 94, 95. So... In 94, 95, like, they've taken a little bit more than Kandahar. I don't have exactly the maps in front of me. I can try and pull them up. But, yeah, this was one of the... Uh, there are certain years that we have very, it seemed, seemingly little writing about. Uh, we have the decline of... The decline of Hezbi Islamic Gulbuddin seems to really start... Not start, I should say. Not the, dec the decline doesn't start, but... They seem to stop being of any real strong relevance after the offshore operation in 93. And by this point, by the time that the Taliban is rising in 94, 95, they are starting to establish themselves as a legitimate participant in this war in the sense that they are able to make temporary alliances and ceasefires in order to fight other factions. Very famously, in December of 94, it was the Rabani government that, in a campaign against Hekmitar, made a temporary alliance with the Taliban. So the Taliban by this point is taking most of South Afghanistan. And they are slowly, by the time that 96 rolls around, inching their way towards Kabul. When we get to the beginning of the third phase of the civil war in 96, we're going to see that control of Afghanistan is split pretty cleanly among the divide in the Hindu Kush mountains. I told you back during the Soviet episodes that the geography of Afghanistan was going to become very important. And this is kind of the instance where it happens. 
where the north and south of Afghanistan is divided between all of the factions that we've mentioned so far that are generally pretty closely aligned with one another, at least compared to the Taliban. To some degree, you know, there's again, still <laughs> listen, not Golbudin, okay, but like the people who eventually form the Northern Alliance. Um, I'm also, to, I'm trying to vocalize that without saying it yet, but yeah, these are the groups that will eventually come to form the Northern Alliance. Honestly, his view without joining the Northern Alliance is incredible to me. And why is that? Primarily because of what is called the Afshar operation. The Afshar operation begins with. Sayaf attacking who is the leader of Ithihad. So, ostensibly, the goal is to prevent his Biwadat from seizing the country for Iran, uh, which in a population with a 10% Shia populace seems unlikely to begin with, right? I mean, Iran has some very tenuous cultural connection to the to Afghanistan. They're both Persian peoples speaking very, very generally. But that does seem to be quite far fetched. Yeah. Um the event itself was described by uh Afghani journalist at the time uh as being a series of repeated human butcheries by Masood and Sayas men. Um, including like leaving corpses in the street of Hazara Afghanis specifically to terrorize them. Mm-hmm. Flaying people. Like shit that would be offensive and atrocious in any context. <laughs> Honestly. But yeah, it is very impressive that the Northern Alliance comes to exist and that these people can all put this aside. Again, the things that make people more efficient than which are leaving countries are things like being able to put aside the past sometimes. Um, and so 96 is the period by... Or should we jump there? I don't know. I think I've given the time stamp I'm looking at right now, I think it's probably a good time to move into phase three. Yeah, so I have uh, 95, 96 kind of combined... Okay. This is the point where the Taliban are about to reach Kabul. Yes. So they're either occupying or bombarding most of Afghanistan at this point. Uh, Again, we have very much moved on from we want peace to uh, we are now waging the jihad. We We will be victorious. So they're backed by, at this point, for at least part of it, Hizbi Islami Khalis, Hizbi Islami Golbuddin, and Junbish varyingly. So any one of those could be allied with them at almost any point in time during these years. It depends. As well as the GID, the General Intelligence Directorate in Saudi Arabia, and the ISI in Pakistan. Um, so the main advantage that they have is that South Afghanistan is primarily at this point anyway being run by local militias. They have a tactic to claim towns that works very well for them. So remember, all of these local militias were at one point mostly being funded by the U.S. government or Saudi Arabia or Pakistan. So there's a system here. First, we send an emissary, and he informs you that you are welcome to lay down your arms and join the Taliban. And those weapons will go to the Taliban's weapon supply, and we will provide security for your town, and you will not. 
And if you say no, okay. Oops, sorry. What were you saying? I was, gonna, I was just going to say. So, is this a, a different strategy than is being used by most of the mujahideen groups? Uh yes. Yeah, it sounds quite novel, almost like mafioso. Yeah, it very much has the like extortion style. <laughs> hey, it really would be a shame if someone came and broke your windows. You should pay security for that. Uh, <laughs> and you um, can imagine this being an attractive offer in a country that has been torn up by war for the last 20 years. Yeah. 18. So if you say no, then they send a second delegation. Uh, this time with pious elders from a local madrasa to you. And one official Taliban representative as well as a like formal religious leader who remind you that it is your duty as a Muslim to advocate for peace as much as possible. And so these are, okay, so they're bringing in religious leaders from local madrasas along with Taliban, one Taliban representative, to once again make the pitch in a slightly different way. Yeah. So the first, so the primary, the principal appeal that they use is this kind of like, I... I'm hesitant to refer to it as a mafioso tactic because it does seem like it's a, like it was probably conducted more or less under the auspices of a, or under the pre under the pretenses rather, of a you know, actual, like community leader outreach. Position considering that they did accept, and understand the answer no at least to come back for the second delegation, and so yeah, especially second, at least in the beginning. Right, so then the second delegation comes in, and then they're trying to make this pitch instead based on a religious duty and obligation. So you can see the different, like, tiers of how they're trying to make this appeal to people. Uh-huh. And they're doing it by, you know, inviting, again, by taking this movement, which is a... It might be pertinent to recall that the Taliban is very much a kind of, like, pro-tribalist societal organization kind of group. Yes. As opposed to some other ones who are a little bit more modern. Because uh, in this sense, you're not bringing in, like, you know, representatives of the Taliban that might be from any particular region, but at that time still represent what is essentially a national organization and instead are trying to appeal to these people based off, like, local, like, very local, almost like tribal leaders. They would be religious leaders, especially here. Yeah, so if we remember back to uh, the split between Hizbi Islamic Khalis and the split between and Hizbi Islamic Golbuddin, uh, the primary difference is that Hizbi Islamic Golbuddin believes that Golbuddin should be in charge of uh, seemingly everything. Mm -hmm. uh, Hizbi Islamic Khalis believes in this uh, very traditional passion practice of the Loya Jerga, and so it makes sense for Hizbi Islamic Khalis to ally with the Taliban, right? Mm -hmm. In many ways, they have very similar goals. Uh, that said, Hizbi Islamic Khalis is not unified. Some of them joined the Northern Alliance, some of them joined the Taliban. Some of their leadership does too. Like, it, it splits. So if you, uh, they bombard you with artillery until you say yes, or you're dead. So that's the third phase of the, the making the pitch. Yeah, yeah, that's the, uh, so now we're proving to you why you need broken, why you need us to stop other people from breaking your windows. How often do you think it progressed to that stage? Almost never. Almost never? 
Uh, most of the leaders at this point are willing to just lay down their arms. Like most of the guys leading these militias are sick of fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the ones who aren't just join the Taliban as soldiers. So they usually are. So phase one is usually pretty effective. Yeah. And phase two, usually, even if the leader is not in favor of it. Uh, so there's this uh, sample that's used in one of Prodigy's songs where uh, it's this girl talking and she says, uh, that religion is regarded by uh, the foolish as true, the wise as false, and by leaders as effective. Mm-hmm. And that seems to very much be how like, the second phase tends to go. The Taliban sends in you know, a, a couple pious elders and a religious leader, and they make a religious appeal for peace. And it works. Turns out that most people like peace and also like in the strictest sense, whether you like whatever Abrahamic God you follow tends to advocate for as a God of peace, tends to advocate themselves as a God of peace. And people tend to remember that if nothing else. Uh, So when these people come up and they're like, hey, we can stop fighting. Pretty attractive offer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this whole, so the Taliban, uh, in addition to Deobandism, uh, also eliminate from, or blah, 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 originate, not eliminate, from a group called Ulema-i-Iskemi, uh, who are Pakistani-based and a split from a different group, uh, called Zia-ul-Haq. Um, I could find almost nothing about them. I do feel that it's worth to mention, like, this is the group, like, this groups that they split from, mm-hmm. um, and it is where Mullah Omar comes from. Okay. That's your homework for tonight, audience. Yeah, find out for us. Find tell out us. who they are, and then tell us. So I I'll fucking add a Q&A on the episode. You can yeah. sound off. Now we're the ones doing the cues this time. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to... Um, just looking at the timestamp, I, w- I do want to get into the... Yeah, phase four. Phase three. Phase three. Phase four, there's enough... We I think we decided not to do the U.S. war because we figured there were enough resources on that already. But all of these players that we've mentioned so far, many of them do return in the war in Afghanistan that some histories might neglect to properly mention in full. But and would be Almost every one of these horrific war crime committing motherfuckers manages to continue to stay in power. None of them see trial. Well, they have a, uh, to be honest, like all of, they, they, they do have a good reputation for participating in the war. They've got a storied resume with almost no gaps. For nearly 15, I've been in the war crimes industry for 15 years, you know. <laughs> What's your market? I'm really, I really cornered the dudes who love war crimes market. I sell war crimes and uh, war crime accessories. You like the uh, George Bush? Both of them. Got them both. Mm-hmm. The war crimes guys. Good fellas. All right. But, so to talk a little bit about the Northern Alliance, the Northern Alliance is formed by Masood and Dostum, I think are the two principal leaders of it. There are other groups Correct. that we have mentioned before that are involved. This is uh, Jamiat Islami and Junbishi Mili. That's Dostum? Yes. Okay. And Hizbi Wadat. And Hizbi Wadat, which is the, which is Iran. Yes. Yeah, Iran-backed, functionally Iran. Yes. So these three groups come to form the Northern Alliance, which is opposed to the Taliban. The Taliban have, by this point, taken Kabul, correct? 
yes, interestingly, the Taliban are also invited to the Northern Alliance meeting. Uh, why? Uh, because Masood is really good at making enemies friends sometimes. They refuse to they refuse to participate. So what is so it's not called the Northern Alliance meeting when this happens. Uh, no, it is, is another, the this is another summit, I assume, to try the bomb to, summit. Yeah, to try and establish peace in the country. Yeah. Um, but by this point, the Taliban, much like uh, Hekmichar, are not in a, they are not in a position where they are wanting to play ball. The Taliban, of course, have a stronger argument for that. Yeah, they're winning. Which is we control something like 60% of the country, 70% of the country already. I think we'll just take all of it. So it is worth noting that by 96, uh, anywhere between 65 and 85% of the country are completely destroyed. Uh, compared with... War has been raging in this country for the last 20 years. If you consider... 35% in 88. From 92 to 96, and we have doubled the amount of destruction in this country. One of the great humanitarian atrocities of the 20th century. Undeniably. With effects that are still, as we've seen, wide-ranging, even outside of Afghanistan today. Yeah, as boring as I think that the time period right after 2001 is, um, at some point we may circle back to Afghanistan to do a very modern history of it. Uh, if we have enough subscribers, Hayes and I will fly to Afghanistan, and each of us will learn languages. We'll do interviews. We'll go around Afghanistan. I call Dari. I think I could learn Pashtun, maybe. Well, I wanted to learn Dari. You can. I, I think we could both learn. They're both very similar, but if I, if we have, if we're, you're saying we're both going to learn a language each, or are we both just going to learn one? We both learn Pashtun. Are you both? I feel like once you get one alpha. Like, it would be the alphabet that would be the hardest part. No, it would not. No, 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 no. The alpha, like, the hardest part of learning a language? Yeah, absolutely. No, no. It's, like, the easiest part. No, because if I'm, like, if I'm looking at Latinized Arabic, I can manage my way through it sometimes. Like, certain words I will be able to pick out, and I can learn the words when they are pronounced pretty quickly. And learn how, like, they function together. I'm, I'm, I'm comparing my experience to Russian. The Russian alphabet you can get down in, like, a day. Russian alphabet's easy. But the Russian but Russian grammar and declension. Right. Whereas with Arabic, like reading you a, kind of reading a language is different from speaking it, so what does his his mean? What is his it means Japanese sword. What are you doing? Hisby? No, his His I don't know. What yeah. Do Soldier. H I Z B. It's oh. a prefix that you see in Hezbollah. Yeah, he's Bula. He's uh, be with that. He's be. He's be Islami. Islami. Yeah. Um, Wait, were you quizzing me? Is that like a Spanish word? No, I'm no, I'm just like, like once you like when you're actually hearing the words and seeing them all the time, it gets fairly easy to just be like, oh, this is like this is just fucking, you know, it's vocabulary practice basically. But like the actual alphabet. I think the alphabet. Man. I think the alphabet would be easy, especially because I think Arabic script is, Arabic and Farsi script are both, I think, very closely related, very similar, and I think they're both a, a, a ultimately Phoenician derived. So, 
just like everything else in the world. The Northern Alliance is formed up from all of these groups. Uh, and they take Mazadi Sharif. Well, through the, com- the combined might of Masood and Jundish. At this point, the Taliban are kind of in a defensive phase for a little bit. So at this point, Masood is in the northwest, northeast, right? Stretching out from Panjashir Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dostum takes the northwest. Uh, pretty much everyone but those two, or at least their organizations, uh, like... Not just because of the Northern Alliance, but because of the Northern Alliance. Uh, which for a lot of them seems like kind of a way to save face. Mm-hmm. Uh, has joined one of those two groups. Again, Masood is a military genius. In spite of all of his crimes here. And Dostum is an experienced military commander. In spite of all of his crimes here. Both of these men are very skilled at leading armies. They're good at it. And so where the other groups have found themselves struggling against the Taliban because the Taliban are fighting in ways that they are also fighting in, it turns out that when you're both fighting guerrilla warfare uh, and your men are fucking exhausted from 18 years of fighting, the guys who come in with fresh legs are uh, a little bit more willing to keep going. Nobody wants to fight a guerrilla war for fucking 25 years. It's exhausting and frustrating. So the Taliban has these early victories uh, taking 60% of the country. Uh, Once the Northern Alliance is formed, we kind of see that turn around, right? Hello? Yes? Oh, I thought you froze. So uh, the Taliban has this like string of early victories. Once the Northern Alliance is formed, we kind of see this start to turn around, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all of a sudden, they have... Uh, I mean, sort of not really. Are you saying it turns around on the Taliban? Oh, sorry. So there's a series of early victories for the Taliban that culminates in them having a bunch of defeats, uh, starting with Mazadi Sharif. And then ultimately that forms the Northern Alliance out of this newly reinvigorated group of former Mujahideen. It seems like Mazari Sharif actually happens in 97, though. The Northern no, that's the fall of Mazari Sharif. Oh, that's the fall of Mazari Sharif. It's a different... Yeah, that's the end of the Northern Alliance having strength. I see. Okay, so, my, so notes the, are, my notes are a little bit disorganized then, I guess. Okay, so... The Northern Alliance is getting stronger up until about 97. Yeah, so 96 is when the Northern Alliance forms. And yes. this is out of a uh, series of victories in Mazari Sharif. That makes sense, actually, now that I look at my notes, because it seems like some of the consequences of Mazari Sharif seem to contradict each other. But okay. Yeah, because there's two Mazari Sharifs. Yeah. One of them features uh, Taliban lured into a trap, and the other one features a break with Dostum's second hand. A betrayal. Yeah, so the first one is the one where they are lured into a trap. Yeah, and then the second one is when the Taliban starts to... Like, after about a year of success for the Northern Alliance, Yeah, the Taliban starts to take back what they have lost and then gain even more. Yes. 
So remember earlier when I mentioned that we were starting to see the beginnings of fraction between Masood and Dostum. And these are the two principal leaders of the Northern Alliance. Yeah, these are the two strongest leaders in the Northern Alliance. Uh, probably the two best military commanders writ large in Afghanistan, definitely post-88, maybe before that, during the period that we've covered. Joan Bish is present to help with the capture of Mazadi Sharif. They're controlled from a Nakhli, N-A-Q-L-I. So when they capture Mazadi Sharif, Dostum says that we should form a joint military command to Masood. Which Masood doesn't love that idea. Strangely, the man who has been commanding this army for, uh, I don't know, the whole fucking time doesn't love the idea of someone else now commanding his army. Right. Um, the result is that Dostum starts to feel some resentment towards Masood. And what happens from there? Is that a question for me? Yeah. So what I, from what I understand about uh, the second... Ugh. So from what I understand about the second Mazari Sharif was that there was actually... It was not Dostum himself. It was... It wasn't it one of his underlings that ultimately betrayed... Uh, yeah, but what you, were, uh, like, what you were telling me is that there is actually a break between Masood and Dostum. Uh, yeah, so that starts to develop earlier. Okay. Um, but Mazari Sharif is the like culminating act that leads to the uh, Junbish and Gobuddin Hekmatyar like alliance alliance forming against Masood. Yeah, you also have the splitting of uh, Jamari Islami at this time. Yeah. As there are certain factions, as there are certain members that are loyal to Ismail Khan. Yeah. It was another figure. Again, we told you we were throwing a lot of names at you. Yeah. So, what are the consequences you think ultimately of this of Mazari Sharif? Because it seems like we've uh, we've actually uh, made made them quite explicit here. This is the. Second turning point back in favor of the Taliban. Yeah, and uh, signals in large part the beginning of the end for the Northern Alliance. Well, the Northern Alliance manages to maintain some kind of foothold in Afghanistan until the 2001 war with the United States. Where I and believe still, they, right? At least in some form, they still have some foothold there. They have the corridor very up in the north. Yeah, the Panjashir valley and they have Panjashir, i suppose as well Faisabha uh yeah so shamasud's son now controls Panjashir. and so this is a foothold for the united states to begin the pushback against the taliban oh no i mean like currently shamasud still controls Panjashir at this time partially currently as in during this time like today today okay i thought that's what you meant but i wanted to be sure 
Yeah, Ahmad Shah Massoud's son, uh, like, makes public statements. Uh, they had a couple of losses recently against the Is he on Twitter? Uh, ooh, I have to... Oh, I should fucking find out if he is. He's definitely more interesting than King Zayir Shah's fucking poetry, poetry kid in Arlington. How, how do you spell his name? Uh, um, ooh, M-A-S-S-O-U-D. Oh, Massoud. Uh, Ahmad Massoud? Uh, is Ahmad Massoud's son also Ahmad? He's got 187,000 followers. Sounds like he's probably Ahmad Massoud's son. He's- his pinned tweet is from September 6, 2021, and it says freedom. In Urdu, did I find him? Probably. Um, no way, no way. Yeah, to our dear Hazar brothers and sisters and bereaved families, no matter how hard I tried to write something in this morning, the incident is so painful and difficult that I didn't know what to write. For years, they have been killing us with black and white colors with such terrorist acts, and the world only watches and only condemns, and the world does not move. Yeah, no, definitely seems like it's probably Ahmad Masood's son. He's uh, well, well written, well spoken. Uh, his writing yes, translates very. This, this is him. Followed. Yeah. Okay. Oh, on September sixth, two thousand twenty-one, Masood escaped into Tajikistan along with Vice President Amrullah Saleh. Uh, which means that's what that he, means he is he probably. That, that's what it means when he says freedom. He is probably in telecom. He's probably in telecom. Yeah. Or, no, not Telecom. Uh, the other hideout that they had running for... Uh, Ahmad Masood owns land in Tajikistan. Okay. Is it inherited, or... <coughs> Masood also owns some. I mean, I would assume that... At, so, Ahmad Masood's dead, so I assume that his son now owns the land. Well, yeah. I was going to say, I, I assumed that Ahmad Masood owned some at some point, right? I guess we do know yeah. that, don't we? He owned the kind of the headquarters, right? Yes. Okay. So, yeah, that would go to the Ahmad Masood II, the young lion of Panjshir. Interestingly, maybe we could. Uh, ooh, he we probably can get speaks him English. on the pod. That's what I was about to say. If he speaks English, we should get an interview. I don't think he does, but but maybe actually. He grew up the son of a foreign diplomat. Wait, he obtained his master's degree in international politics from City University of London. Yeah, he speaks I English. Don't, I don't think they have um, classes in Dar. Urdu? So. Or Tajik. <laughs> or Tajik. This man probably speaks at least three languages, because he definitely speaks Dari because he is well-educated in Afghanistan. He definitely speaks Urdu because he fucking writes in it. So we should talk a little bit about the... So Masood is assassinated uh, two days before 9-11. Yeah. Um, so as 9-11 is approaching, uh, there are three old Mujahideen leaders who all get assassinated in the days either right before or right after. Um, Ahmad Shah Massoud uh, dies on September 9th, 2001. Um, Rabani makes a call to uh, Saudi leadership, uh, leadership in um, Iran, and also leadership in uh, all religious leadership, uh, with the understanding that the goal is to 
call for the practice of suicide bombing to be named Takfir. Two days before the meeting, he dies. He is killed by a suicide bomber. Wait, two days before the meeting, he dies? Uh, the day before the meeting? Well, I'm just, no, because if, if that's true, that could be true. But that means the meeting was on September 11th. No, no, no. Uh, that's Masood. I'm talking about Rabbani. 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 My bad. So Rabbani's the one who calls for the... Practice of suicide bombing to be Takfir. Yeah. Okay. Um, obviously, like, Iran, Iran agrees. Uh, they also have, like, oh, no, he. it's September 20th when he dies. So, yeah, no, uh, it he, was, dies, he dies after 9-11, significantly. Yeah, I just, it I is thought, his... I thought you were talking about Masood, because that would be fun. That would be interesting. Um, but... Uh, Haj Ali dies in October of 2001. Um, and again, as another old Mujahideen leader, uh, he is the leader of the faction that opposes the Taliban and joins the Eastern Alliance from his Bikalis. I wish we could wrap this up with, uh, moral or, uh, like a positive spin for everyone. But this is not the six o'clock news and we don't have that for you probably you could you could invent a moral out of um i don't know had there been a little bit more political tact willingness to compromise perhaps that could have perhaps we could have prevented a lot of bloodshed or maybe the entirety of the United States war in Afghanistan. Yeah. But but probably not. Maybe not the American portion, but maybe had So I mean, I guess the real message here is that had Afghanis not been fucked with by every world power that could uh, maybe they would have had the opportunity to, like, truly be able to self-govern and to make those compromises on their own without outside influence pushing them towards specific decisions. And that's not, that is still not an impossibility, but you should always hope for the best, prepare for the worst. No, that is certainly a possibility. History is made by people. And at every point in time, people can be better than they were before. Well, then again, history is made by man, but not as he pleases. So it's difficult. Yeah, but people always have the ability to be better than who you were yesterday. You should be better than who you were yesterday is the moral. That's what I'm saying. Not, yeah, not that we're like comparing our viewers to any of these people who are war criminals. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be honest. I don't know who's watching. I don't know what kind of awful thing you've done. I don't know what kind of... I know about the awful things I've done, but I am a... Every day, I hope I'm a better person than I was yesterday. So that's the real lesson, which is probably the lesson of every episode that we will ever do. Be better than some of these people we talk about. Be better aspire, than yourself. And, aspi and aspire to be some of these people we talk about, because we'll talk about some good ones, I'm sure. 
Yeah, especially during Condor. Like, coming up next episode, we're definitely going to mention be, some really, really great people's names. Be heroic. A man without a, you know, good sense of heroism starts to decay before he's 30. There's a quote that Lenin mentions when he's talking about Luxembourg, where he says, because uh, one of the other, one of the German Social Democrats had republished some of Luxembourg's, like, worst work when she was, like, outright wrong. Um, and Lenin makes the statement that... Uh, an eagle may swoop lower than a hen for a moment, but a hen will never rise above the heights of an eagle. And the point is that Rosa Luxemburg, in spite of her errors, in spite of the mistakes that she makes, is always going to be excellent. She is always going to be brilliant. She is a genius even under her worst conditions. She may swoop lower than the hen for a minute. She's just like me. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and we thank you all for watching the first series of Timber Sycamore. It has Afghanistan. Been, it has been entirely enlightening and really, it's, it's been an incredible experience to be able to do this with all of you. And we love you and we hope you guys stay tuned for the next series. Yeah, look forward to, we hope you enjoyed it. This has been Timber Sycamore and I'm Michael Petroselli with Hayden DePriest. This has been Have a Timber nice Sycamore day. Presents Afghanistan.